One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, the new abnormal. I'm a left wing pundit and an editor at large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it. And I'm producer Jesse Kennan. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. Today, we have an excellent show. Former senior advisor for innovation to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Alec Ross is going to talk to us about his new book, The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. Then we'll talk to activist and writer Ryan Hampton about his new book, Unsettled, How the Purdue Pharma Bankruptcy Failed the Victims of the American Overdose Crisis. And he's going to talk to us about the fight on the ground to get justice from Purdue Pharma. But first, we have returning show favorite, the one, the only... James Carvel. Welcome back to the new abnormal, James Carvel. Well, thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. You're right. It's not normal. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fan favorite. I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. I was going to introduce you as an email slut. <laughs> yeah, you like that? <laughs> that was pretty great. Yeah, you uh, signed it. You know, there was one time a governor, Louisiana, and other governor said if he'd sign anything, he was sitting in his desk and it went to result. It was a fall day and a leaf blew on, on his desk and he signed the leaf. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this McAuliffe. This Virginia governor's race is really important. It's, it's critically important. And just to amplify, it's important. If the Democrats lose that, it will affect retirements. The more Democrats will retire, and it'll, it'll help Republican recruitment. So they'll get better candidates. Conversely, if we win, it'll send a signal, well, maybe this is not going to be the way that we thought it was shaping up. So it, it's, first of all, I spent a lot of time in Virginia. My daughter's getting married there. Three weeks. You know, Virginia's made a lot of progress. It's all we're going to turn into Oklahoma if, if Young can win. Yeah. Well, these, I mean, what strikes me, and I've written a lot about this abortion stuff in Texas, is that these Republican governors now have power to turn these states into anything they want. Oh, forget everything. I mean, that, that Youngkin's already said American bridge have on tape saying, well, I can't go, I'm elected, we're going to do all of that. And if, if he wins, he'll probably, could Virginia, the Democrats have the governorship in both houses, but not by very much. And we could lose both houses and the governorship. So it's time to hit the button and get it, get motivated here. Yeah, so it strikes me this is the high-stakes selection. You know McAuliffe. You have been on the ground there. Right. Are Democrats doing what they need to be doing, and what should they be doing in this run-up? Well, I, I think the terrorist strategy of, you know, usually people that consultants and candidates try to convince you that they're going to win and they're ahead. And no, it's it's close. We could lose. Get motivated. Now, hopefully this thing follows the same trajectory as California. I don't expect it to quite do that. And, you know, the, the, the polling is exceedingly tight. But, you know, the Democratic enthusiasm has a ways to go. I'm hoping we can get there. But uh, I'm taking anything for granted. I, I'm very nervous. I think the stakes of this are enormously high. And I will not rest easy till the night of November 2nd. <laughs> um. Yumkin also has is he's a Trump candidate and he's very Trumpy. And we have, you know, there are these recordings of him saying very Trumpy stuff. This midterm, there are a lot of Trump candidates. Can you talk about what's happening there? Well, all you have to do is look at that Iowa rally. Yeah. But if you had Chuck Grassi, as I call him, or ancient Greece, I mean, it was in, you know, in a Roman Senate. <laughs> OK, <laughs> I mean, he was up there. The government, the congressional people. It's Trump is just, he's just taking the whole thing over. And he enjoys it. And they all have to sit there and, and, and grovel to him. And, of course, Yunkin said he wouldn't be running if it wouldn't be for Trump. He's, he, he tries to come across, well, you know, he's, he's very slippery. He wants people to believe whatever they want to in, invest in him. Now, they're doing a good job of, of, of 
I mean, that blistering his ass pretty good with the negative. I, I, I got to say, they're not, it's not like they, they're not rolling it up, and it's not like Terry's not raising money, but we got to keep, keep on top of this. Yeah, um, and I mean, what do you think? That it looks like we have a lot of Trumpy candidates for open seats. We just had... We just had the guy who's running against the music man in Ohio. You know, that's a Trump candidate. Yeah, you know that, that Josh Mandel? Uh, no, well, that's a different Trump candidate. But, okay. But yes, you know, in the Ohio Senate race, you have Josh Mandel, you have J.D. Vance. I mean, you have a, cra- I mean, that's a crazy cast of, of Trumpers, right? The, the J.D. Vance, I don't think he's going to win. Right. He, he was critical of Trump, and now he's come down to, to, to you know, he's a kind of Lindsey Graham of Ohio. But right. Josh Mandel, he, he's, he's, he's the real deal. He's and a he's real really deal. he's really crazy. Yeah, he's really yeah. crazy. And, and, you know, we got, you know, we have a good, you know, Tim Ryan would be a good candidate, but Ohio is a, is a tough nut. Yeah. How can Democrats win the middle of the country? Well, first of all, a lot of we, we can't win, but we can do better. But some we have to win. Uh, Wisconsin right. comes to mind, you know, immediately. It seems like if Democrats can't can't beat Russia, Ron. I'll, I'll give you the optimistic scenario. Okay. And, and none of these things are unrealistic. First of all, I don't. Biden gets a deal. I don't know what they're waiting on. Anybody get everybody in there? And say, okay, you know, this is what we this is what we're going to do. We're going to call this place and the mansions and the cinema, the, the representative, whatever. Okay, whatever yeah. it takes. Bernie Sanders, because if we don't hang together, we're going to surely hang separate. Yeah, you get a deal. The virus is getting better. It's hard to look at these numbers and say, gee, if this continues, it it, it could be pretty good. You know, right? And the economy is like there's pent up demand everywhere. So yeah. you get a deal. The virus doesn't dissipate, but it get, it gets a lot better. It becomes sort of flu-like thing. We got therapeutics coming. Pin up demand starts crack, cracking the economy, and and you know wages go up. And uh, I could see us having a, a, a good November 2020. But it takes it, it to, to say, look, when the United States saw the Biden plan, they had confidence in it. The employers were hiring, people were investing and buying things, and then you know you, you have a story, right? Right now, we don't have much of a story to tell. Well, I mean, we have a very successful vaccine rollout and a return to democracy. I mean, those are not, it's yeah, not nothing. But, 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 you know, Molly, in politics, it, it's, it, it, you know, you start the month and you have 90 grand in the bank and I have 110 grand in the bank. And at the end of the month, we both have 100 grand in the bank. You feel a lot better about your 100 grand. Well, the truth of the matter is the country kind of thought the vaccine rollout in late May mid-June, like, hey, we're on a roll. Right. And it's not Biden's fault. The freaking Delta variant comes along, and people don't feel as optimistic as they did before. Now, there's a good case to be made that they'll feel more optimistic come Thanksgiving or Christmas. And if right. they do, that'll help a lot. Well, it won't and- help till November 2nd if they don't get a deal. I mean, he's got a, they're, running, they're running against Biden. So what happens now with this? I mean, if you had to get, I mean, you still have cinema and mansion not sort of back and forth, right? Right. How would you get these people on board? Doesn't it strike you that Chuck Schumer is not doing enough to get these people where they need to be? Well, first of all, it's got to be Biden, the president, all right? And, and all of this protesting and, you know, attacking, mansion is a... Italian Roman Catholic Democrat from West Virginia. Right. A Democrat has not carried a county in West Virginia since 2008. Right. All right. And your choice is not Mansion of Bernie Sanders. Your right. choice it's is Mansion, mansion of Marsha Blackman. Right. All right. It's true. Yeah. So, so what? So what do you want? And Senators Mark Kelly. She might cost Mark Kelly a Senate seat. Right. And I mean, they're just gonna have to sit down and, and suck it up and negotiate and. Give something here and give something there. Schumer, you know, other, you know, the other centers got to got to work on this. Pelosi's got to get everybody on page. Look, this shit is hard. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not denying that at all. Yeah. But if you don't do it, then I, 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 I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I don't think people are to say that if they come back in power in 2024, you can kiss this democracy's ass goodbye. It's gone. Yeah. What, if they come state. back in power in 2022, you can kiss this democracy thing goodbye. Sure can. I mean, and, even and, and, if, and, 
Yeah. You're just the criminality that's going on. What is Merrick Garland doing, by the way? Yeah, what is Merrick Garland doing? I, I don't doing? think that man knows whether to, to whine his ass or scratch his watch. I mean, <laughs> you are Mr. Democratic Insider. I mean, can can... I mean, how is the DOJ not doing anything? I don't know. Trump is blatantly committing obstruction of justice. First of all, Mueller gave him 10 instances of obstruction of justice. Trump is telling people not to cooperate with a duly authorized and panel congressional committee. That's against the law. Yes. I mean, I don't understand. And why is the select committee, the January 6th select committee, not having hearings ASAP? I mean, well, they, they're working they pretty not? hard. They, 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 they're moving. I mean, you got to get the subpoenas out. You got to do the pre-interviews. I mean, I mean, they're working hard. But 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 Trump is telling people not to cooperate. You can't just, you know, that's bad. That's against right. the law. What happens with the people who won't, like Steve Bannon, who's claiming executive privilege, what would you do in this case? Well, what they do is, is that they, when they, they turn it over to FBI to serve the subpoenas, or if it doesn't show up, arrest him. Yeah, but you can't, you can't, you can't pick, in, in, in this country, you can't pick that you don't want to show up. You just can't do that. That's against the law. It's, it's wrong and it's illegal. But here's a political question for you. Say you arrest Steve Bannon. Right. Does Steve Bannon then become a, a, the Ashley Babbitt of... The Trump administration, I mean, does he use that to his advantage? I, you cannot let lawlessness go. Right. right? People say, well, you know, if you indict Trump, it's just if he's a guilty, then indict him. You, you can't have the most famous person in the United States blatantly committing crime. The hell with the political fallout. Nobody's going to like go to war for Steve Bannon. The only people I feel sorry for is, you know, I'd like to be a cellmate. How, about, how do you think that guy smells? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, smell like one of Rudy's farts. So you would say lock Steve Bannon up. If he, does, if, he, if he doesn't comply, absolutely. Right. Well, his whole thing is that even though he hasn't been in the executive branch for many, many years and he was there for about a month, that he is, in fact, that he has executive privilege. Lock him up. If you either show up and talk or lock him up. Why fool with a guy like this? Yeah. I mean, he's already, from the indictment that Trump had to pardon him, and I can't believe that they're not looking into him. I mean, yeah. Jesus, man. But you can't tolerate Trump blatantly just breaks laws. Yeah. You can't do that. Yeah. You can't say, well, I'm on the political, you know, I'm worried about the institutional integrity of the Department of Justice. The hell with the institutional integrity of the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice is supposed to do one thing, and that is to enforce the laws of the United States. That's their job. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I'm, I'm serious. No, I, I'm agreeing with you. I mean, I, it's, I think a lot of people wonder, I think even Trump thinks he's, I mean, I don't understand why everyone is slow rolling all the time. Well, if you'd broken laws all your life and had never been held accountable, why wouldn't you feel that way? By the way, I, I think they're going to indict him in New York before the year is over. And I think the case they're going to have is going to be so compelling and so strong that it, it, it I don't say shock anybody with any sense, but they'll go, wow. I mean, they're not, if you think this guy... Mr. Pomerantz, so I don't even know, I'm told by any number of people, is the best criminal lawyer in the United States, is taking a leave of absence and making $4,000 an hour in the, that FSI, FSIS forensic accounting firm. Right. And they got all these things. For you to think that they're not going to indict Trump, you would say, well, Trump is basically an honest man. Okay, yeah, try to get that not. sentence out of your mouth. Yeah. All right. They're going to yeah. indict him. That's coming. Yeah, no question. I'm reading so many pieces now about Biden's polling dips, and there's a lot of, like, anti-Biden sort of sentiment I'm reading in the straight news. And I just, I can't tell if it's based on something or it's just where we are in the news cycle. Well, you know, I think it's based on maybe he has a grand strategy here. Yeah. And maybe, that you know, he knows how to play this out and he's crap the guy. I don't know. But they're not making a lot of positive news right now. Okay. They're not, they're not driving anything. So, you know, of course, there's nothing that the media rather do to, to show their independence. Right. You know, where they all supported the freaking Afghanistan war. 
And they go, well, the, 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 the exit was fucked up. Well, no, it was the entrance that was fucked up. Right. Right? We lost that wall 15 years ago. Right. What are you talking about? But that gives everybody the escape. And so that now the, the son of the defense minister of Afghanistan bought a mansion in Beverly Hills for like 20, 20 million dollars. Right. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, how'd you like to have one of your kids, you know, yeah. fighting for that crap? <laughs> It strikes me that Republicans are trying to start a civil war. Yeah. Had the, I mean, you've been in politics for a long time. Have you ever seen this? Of course not. I wasn't, I wasn't alive in 1812. <laughs> right after it. <laughs> <laughs> My daddy talked me about it. We but, love Carl. Who has seen anything like this? Who has seen this kind of utter lawlessness? Well, I, 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 of course I haven't seen anything like it. And, and what is, like, striking is we may be getting more of them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and they're coming out and saying these are like tourists coming to the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, oh, my God. Right now, they're leading in the polls. Maybe maybe this is, if the country, some chance that it does, maybe we get, maybe the government is no better than our citizens. Maybe maybe it's the public's fault. George Harlan said. <laughs> uh, this weekend, Steve Scalise was on one of the Sunday shows refusing to say that Trump had lost the election. We now have a Republican Party that has its own reality. Obviously, no Scalise. I think he knows that he's scared to say it because his caucus will depose his ass. Right. Right. He's a, he's he's a, a, remember he's elected by the Republican House caucus, which right. is eighty percent completely out of their mind. Okay, I will I will concede <laughs> that twenty percent of the Democrats are, I think, politically naive and you know too right. old. Uh, that's right. okay. It's not. I, I mean, AOC. They, she's not a bad person. Or anything. I just think she has some kind of impractical views. The worst thing well, to say about. And it. right, but and politically naive is not the same thing as being completely batshit crazy. Correct, Lauren Robert. That's a high class operation there. <laughs> I mean, that, that goes right in. With, what about Corey? Okay. <laughs> but they're never gonna. I mean, if Republicans never tell the truth, they are constituents will never go along with it. I mean, right now they're trying to elect Republican governors and secretaries of state who will make it impossible for Democrats to win elections. I mean, how do you, how do Democrats fight that? What the Republicans basically telling their constituent is the truth. All right, well, James, wait a minute. All right, what they're saying is the America you know no longer exists. Right, that's right. The America that I knew when I graduated from law school in 1973, we had one black student and three females. Right. Right. Okay. That America doesn't exist anymore. We didn't know what BMW or Sony TV was. Right. Right. All right that that's just. And by the way, you're right. The the, the country is changing. Right. In, in my opinion, it's almost. Almost all of it, in many ways, is a good thing. But whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, it is a thing. And so when they go in and tell people that, and so that tells everything that somehow or another, I I can make it 1958 all over again. Right. Which why would you, you know, because that was the high water mark of America. Well, it was, unless you were a woman or or gay or, you know, a a, a non white person, it was pretty shitty for you. Yeah. But if you were, you know, you were a white kid in Louisiana, it's pretty good, pretty good world you lived in. Yeah. I mean, that's, but that, that is true. Their basic critique is true. Yeah. And I so think. that trumps everything because he is going to give me my, my country back, the country that I knew. Right. That I started out in. There's a word, I think it's called revanchionist. I may be mispronounced. Yeah. It, no, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Jesse is sending me lots of text messages that he, we have right. to get out. I can't stop interviewing James Carville. It's just too much fun. Please come back. Hey, folks. If you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or, I prefer, don't you? That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will, because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands, from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Alec Ross is a former senior advisor for innovation to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and the author of The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. Welcome to New Abnormal, Alec Ross. Thank you for having me. So, The Raging 2020s, say, what's your central thesis of the book? My central thesis of the book is that we need to rewrite our social contract. You know, about every 80 to 100 years or so, we so lose the equilibrium. In the relationship between people, governments, and businesses, we can't sort of incrementally work our way through it. We need to fundamentally rewrite the social contract. So explain to us what that means and what the like last time that happened. Sure. When, when I say rewrite the social contract, what I talk about is, you know, instead of like taking your car to the shop for a repair, it's like basically buying it. So uh, the, be- the best known example, Example in the United States is the New Deal. So after the trauma of the Depression, it's interesting. Three countries, Germany, Italy, and the United States, were all in relatively similar circumstances. Germany ran toward Nazism. Mm -hmm. Italy ran toward fascism. The United States embraced the New Deal and just completely restructured the economy. Interesting, which is what the Biden administration is doing right now. I think so. You know, they're they're at the beginnings of it, but they're facing hell of a headwind. And, you know, they're trying to do it quickly, which is what they need to do. Though normally, um, these things take years. You know, like thinking back to the New Deal, I mean, FDR was first elected president in 1932, and we were still in pretty rough economic shape for six, seven, eight years 
after he was elected. And nobody gets that kind of time. And there isn't that kind of time. You would compare this the closest to right after the Depression. So I think in the United States, that's the closest. If you're going to really geek out, you would go and, back and to like... we will. <laughs> let's geek out for like 30 seconds. Yeah, please. The, the 1840s in Europe, like mm. for, for, for 40 years, the world, the Europe changed from being agricultural to industrial. But this was like the Charles Dickens kind of industrial, 11-year-olds losing their hands. Uh, Then there was the largest wave of revolutions in Europe's history and ideological movements like communists. The Communist Manifesto was written in 18. But then industrialization was made to work because with all this crazy tech innovation that enabled industrialization, we innovated with our public policy and put things in places like child labor laws, a minimum wage, pension, and free public education. So that's like... That's the biggest rewriting of the social contract in the last 200 years. And I think we could use some of that, but I, I would settle for the new. Do you see other 2020, uh, other 20s? You know, I do. I think that, you know, it's interesting the the 1920s were such a, you know, the roaring 20s came right off of the Spanish flu and, and the trauma of World yeah. War One. And you saw this boom, not just economically, but also in things like arts and culture. And I do think that there's going to be, there are going to be booms, artistic and cultural boom this decade. And I think that there likely is to be a lot of wealth created. The big question, though, is for whom is that wealth going to be created? So when it comes to, you worked in the State Department with Hillary. I did. So how did that affect your worldview of that? It affected my worldview because for the four years that I worked for her, I traveled my, my, Somebody in my office totaled it up 951,000 miles to over 40 countries. Yeah, that's a job. That <laughs> is, so, tells me. Yeah, yeah that, is two, that is two round trips to the moon with a side trip to New Zealand. Yeah. And, and so my view of all of this was informed by what I saw all over the world. And you saw the way in which different countries were rewriting their social contract for both good and bad. And recognizing that we in the U.S., we're not going to be able to just sort of put one foot in front of another and sort of rule the world for decades to come without a pretty significant reorientation of the way that we live and work. Did she do the most miles of anyone? I think she did. I mean, she was an incredible, incredible workhorse. You know, Condi traveled a lot, but I think Madam Secretary did more. She went absolutely everywhere. What are your sort of suggestions to politicians on how, besides sort of passing Build Back Better and more sort of the social safety net, what are the other, I mean, you must have ideas about how to deal with America's polarization problem. Sure. And the first thing, and this is a really geeky, boring topic, but it's hugely, it's hugely important. Taxes. We need a global minimum tax. I mean, that's coming though, right? Well, we hope so. I mean, if I, if you were to say what's the single most important thing Joe Biden has done, I would say he's pushed the ball forward on a global minimum. Yeah. I mean, it's the case right now that a single FedEx driver, one, pays more in federal taxes than Federal Express Corporation. A 17-year-old barista at Starbucks making minimum wage several times over the last five years will have paid more in federal taxes than Starbucks. Yeah. And so, look, that is all because capital is global. You can put money anywhere. FedEx and Starbucks are not breaking the law. But we have to make what is legal now illegal if we're going to have the actual money spend on all the things that we need to spend it on without raising taxes on the middle class. If, you know, 99% of the people who are listening to the show right now could pay less in taxes if the world's wealthiest individuals and the world's wealthiest corporation pay something within the right of the taxes that they ought to. So what strikes me is Republicans lowered the corporate tax rate. With the theory, who knows if they really believed it, but they sort of said, well, this way more people will pay and we'll have more corporations paying. And what happened was corporations were not like, oh, yes, let's sign up and pay more taxes. They continued to do this, you know, I'm based in Ireland, I'm based in Italy, I'm da 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 da, to avoid the corporate tax rate. So uh, it strikes me that with this global minimum tax, you could actually have corporations forced to pay taxes, which will be new. That's exactly right. And, you know, this. The, what's crazy about the Trump tax cut 
is they, they corporate taxes. They cut capital gains taxes. Then they cut taxes on the topmost earners. So it was a great tax bill if you're like super rich or you're one of the world's biggest company companies, but it screws everybody else. Right. And, and some of the arguments behind the corporate tax were just a complete joke because we live in a world of shareholder capitalism instead of stakeholder capitalism. And all of those additional resources just went to shareholders. It did not right. fund new research and development. They did not hire more people. They did not yeah. reincorporate their, you know, Grand Cayman's Island affiliate, you know, <laughs> into Nebraska. None of that proved true. We've, we're now three years past this bill being in place. And what we really saw is that it just sort of sucked, sucked resources out of the federal treasury and reallocated it to to shareholders' balance sheets. Uh, um, interesting to me. Yeah. No, it strikes me that we have a situation that is um, that is it, it's like it's sort they're sort of brilliant at not paying taxes. I also feel like I mean I live in a blue state, so I never understand the point. Like I'd rather have very good public schools that, and pay a little more taxes than like live in a red state or even like some very good blue states like uh, New Mexico, which is like my favorite non New York New York state state and. Um, and they don't have great schools because they have low state taxes. So, I mean, w- when you're not paying taxes, you're taking that money from someone. No, it's unbelievable. I was born and raised in West Virginia, and my parents still live there. And when I was growing up, it was like one of the most predictable Democratic electing states. Like, I think Dukakis. <laughs> um, but now the politics of West Virginia are more Taliban than they are right. sort of 1980s Union Democrat. And when you see the policies of Republicans that are very popular in West Virginia really destroying the lives of West Virginians, and you ask, how in the world could that possibly be? I go back, I see my parents, I talk to people at the bar, and it's because they live in an alternative yeah. information universe. Like I, I, I was back in, in West Virginia a couple months ago. And I was sitting at a bar and I had a beer or two in my belly. So I started talking to somebody, you know, and without revealing that I worked for Obama for six years or worked for Hillary, I just started asking. Right. And, and this dude was absolutely convinced that his, that Donald Trump had given him a tax, a, a tax, which of yeah. course he had not. Right. And if you actually start asking them questions, their politics outside of the cultural issues, but on the economic issues are far more Bernie and AOC. Oh, yeah. Than they are country club, country club Republican, but they don't know any. They just they live in this world of Fox News and right wing radio and, you know, their Facebook filter bubbles. So they just they're actually wrong just yeah. in terms of their factual understanding of what Democrats put forward and what Republicans forward. It's it's in this case, it's actually black. And- it's crazy. But let's talk about Facebook for a minute. You know, this week was all allegation of Facebook juicing the algorithm to make people all the stuff we have been reading for months and months and months in a lot of really smart uh, places where the tech journalism is really good. Like, and um, that basically Facebook is juicing. Here's this whistleblower saying Facebook is using is radicalizing people. So not only they're making what was already a problem even really. I mean, what would you what would your suggestion be? I mean, it's you know, I talked to Mark Zuckerberg about this. You know, I know Mark. I know Sheryl Sandberg. I know the people who are making these. And the last conversation I had with Mark Zuckerberg was unpleasant. Um, I think <laughs> that's, that's me being dip, that's me being diplomatic. Yeah. See, this is this is me using my State Department trained language. Yeah. It was about two years ago, <laughs> and I was at a dinner with with Mark Zuckerberg, and I tried to have. I was just like, now, Mark, let's go on right now and look at some of this. You know, you, you, my big objection was they chose as an official as an official fact-checking organization. You know, one of these... The caller. Exactly. And I pointed that out to him. And he sort of looked at me and in the most pissy possible voice goes, the left is just as bad. And, you know, I think there's a difference between intelligence and wisdom. And a lot of the folks who work at Facebook are very intelligent. They have high IQs. Zuckerberg has a high IQ, but he's not wise. There aren't very many stamps in that. You know, they, they don't understand the real force and effect of their work. And so I do think that since they've grown so powerful, the sort of bro, the brotastic boy billionaire right. 
that run a lot of these platforms are at the limits of their intelligence and they're showing their lack. of. You know, it's interesting because we had someone on the pod who was talking about this. Zuckerberg had sort of been chastised by Peter Thiel and that they had sort of gotten him to go along with some of the Trump some of the Trump language that they knew wasn't true, but they, I feel like it comes back to this idea that, that this like innate belief that the meat, that the mainstream media is liberal. And so the mainstream media does everything it can to prove that it's not liberal ergo. And I feel like that's where we saw what we saw happening with Zuckerberg at face. No, I think that's exactly right. And the, what people fail to fully appreciate is, you know, again, thinking back to the title of this book of mine, The Raging 2020s, there are actually the real world consequences of these decisions about like, how are we going to juice our algorithms? Right. It, it creates a body count. It creates mm-hmm. rage. When you create, when you have algorithm, algorithms that pump up misinformation about vaccine, when you have algorithms that, that radicalize people, um, in really consequential ways, then it creates a body count. It makes us a less divided, more violent country. Right. Now, here's a question for you. There was this during the, you know, this week on the Sunday shows, all the Facebook people were out. We saw that the stock went down, which historically never happened. You know, the stock went down, these allegations, the congressional hearings, like clearly it's affecting Facebook. They sent all their people out on the Sunday shows. One uh, interview I saw, they asked a Facebook executive about January 6th, you know, was the algorithm responsible for January 6th or for, you know, juicing the content towards January 6th? And and the guy said that he couldn't answer that question. Well, there's your answer right there. Um, and look, that this is, again, with great power comes great responsibility. And the responsibility is not to just maximize shareholder value, right? I mean, I think that and not, plenty of wealth has been created. Plenty more is going to be created. Now I think it's time for some real wisdom to be brought inside, you know, how we do govern some of these social media platforms. It cannot just be left to the brotastic boy billionaires of Silicon Valley and their algorithms, because at the end of the day, they don't really understand what they're producing. I've right. come to, I've come to, I've come to believe that. And it's also the case that they, the the lives they live are incredibly isolated. Like, right? Yeah. Mark Zuckerberg doesn't travel, and right. when he and when he does, he travels like you know he on a he, private jet to, on a, to his on, house in Hawaii. Yeah, with like, and if he goes anywhere other than the house in Hawaii, there's like a gazillion security and staff. And so I think that connection of the brotastic boy billionaires of Silicon Valley from reality now is beginning to affect people all around the world in a malignant. I'm going to just read it to you. Facebook's click. If you remove the algorithms, which is, I think, what the whistleblower was saying, one of her central recommendations, the first thing that would happen is that people would see more, not less hate speech, more, not less misinformation. Look, I think Nicholas Clegg is basically taking dictation from, you know, Nick Clegg, bless his heart. I'm I'm sure he comes from. Democrat. Right? Well, you know, he was a social Democrat. Well, he was from this, from the, uh, from a third party in um, the UK, got this big job, now is holding on, I think, for dear life, because it's a, it's a, I'm sure he's making millions of pounds a year and is not going to be able to get a job after this. Right. And at the end of the day, he's, a, he's not a technologist. And I think he has very little understanding of what he's actually, and I say, yeah. I say that he's not a bad guy. Like I know him, but he's in way over his head. And what we need, and Facebook needs to stop seeing as a PR problem, something to manage. And rather, I think it's a much more existential problem where they need to decide the degree to which they are or are not going to responsibly. Because right now they're on their way to becoming sort of the Philip Morris of the 2020. I mean, ultimately, as distressed as we all may be, I am optimistic that we can get things. You know, when I, you know, I was talking to, my kids about the title of my book, The Raging 2020s. And it was funny, my 18-year-old thought that the word raging uh, was implicitly positive, like raging like a great party <laughs> at midnight. <laughs> and so I do think it's a, there's a distinct possibility. It's entirely up to us. We have the agency to determine whether the future looks more like Mad Max or more like Star Trek. Yeah. Is the world going to look more like, is this decade that started off very, very badly 
going to finish on an up note or on a down note? We have, I think we've got two or three years to set the trajectory. Thank you so much, Alec Ross. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Take care, y'all. Ryan Hampton is an activist and the author of Unsettled, how the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy failed the victims of the American overdose crisis. Welcome to the new abnormal, Ryan Hampton. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for having me. Let us talk about Purdue Pharma. They are in bankruptcy. But explain to us what that means, because it doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that was the biggest shock to me, you know, when I was appointed by the Department of Justice back in September of 2019 to represent victims in this bankruptcy. I thought there would be some sort of meaningful justice. But, you know, I resigned as the co-chair of the official uh, creditors committee representing victims. And actually over 600,000 creditors is someone in, in recovery from Oxycontin myself last month, because I realized that this, this whole thing was a setup from day one. Essentially, Purdue is going to be restructured into a new company. It will still sell Oxycontin because that's the only way to fund the settlement. But coming out of this, you know, the Sacklers are going to walk away. They're walking into the sunset. They're receiving their highly contentious, non-consensual third-party releases. But you would think with even all of that, with a nine billion, you know, close to $9 billion settlement, um, that there would be some sort of justice for those who are harmed the most, victims and unsettled. And the reason I wrote Unsettled, which is a much different book than what I had set out to write, is that victims were sidelined every step of the way. You know, victims only stand to get seven and a half percent of the entire settlement. Ninety two and a half percent of those settlement dollars will go to governments and corporations. And I would also argue to say that the way that states are going to be spending the money, you know, the jury's still out on that. So it's a tremendous amount of injustice. And quite frankly, I mean, like I said, set up from day one, and I would go as far to say it's a corrupt process. The bankruptcy system, you know, coming coming into this, I thought, hey, there's all these great people fighting on behalf of, you know, victims of the American overdose crisis, and we're going to take on Purdue and the Sacklers together. But as I got further into the guts of the process, I realized it was everybody else versus the victims. <laughs> and it's maddening, and it's wrong, and it has to change. And a lot of this bankruptcy legislation that's that's you know front and center right now doesn't even scratch the surface to the things that we need to be doing to ensure that the injustice of Purdue doesn't happen again because the 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 repercussions of this case are going to be felt for decades if the system's not changed. It's going to be felt in Boy Scouts, the Weinstein case, the US gymnastics. What could you legislate in order to make bankruptcy cases more fair and more victim-centered? Well, first and foremost, I, I like to use this analogy because I think it's important for people to realize like how unjust this case has been. So if there was a chemical spill, and I'm going to use the state of Massachusetts as an example, and actually Boston, and let's say there's this company that was involved in egregious behaviors and they poisoned the water and 130,000 people died in the city of Boston. And the state of Massachusetts stood up and said, we're going to sue that chemical company for, you know, trillions of dollars for the harm that they caused. And the company had to go into bankruptcy. And all of a sudden, all these victims got to place a claim against that company. I can guarantee you that the state of Massachusetts wouldn't stand up in open court and say, but we should get paid before the victims get paid. And quite frankly, we should get paid more, much, much more to prevent future harm. We're not going to address the past harm, all the dead families, the 130,000 people that died. They don't really deserve much out of this because we need to build a better water system. That wouldn't happen. But because it's addiction, because it's overdose, and deputy attorney generals in this case actually said in mediation that addicts, that family members, that we did this to ourselves— Therefore, we don't deserve the same level of compensation that they do. Um, that would never happen, right? So I believe the first thing that we need to address in any pending legislation is to ensure that victims always come first, that they're centered first in these settlement agreements. I get what you're saying, but my question for you is, do you think, I mean, are the states 
are they like building rehabs? Are they rebuilding their EMSs? Are they dealing with the consequences of opioids? I know that there are small towns where, you know, their hospital system has been ravaged by opioid use. I mean, what are they using the money for? Look, I'm not saying that the states and the federal government need to, you know, don't need to build a better system because they do. They absolutely do. Is the money going to that? Well, it's supposed to go to that, right? It is supposed to go to that. And it's kind of embedded in the bankruptcy plan that it does. But let me also point out that I pay taxes for those services. These abatement dollars, these litigation dollars are not the only source of revenue right, that the state and the federal government have, they need to be doing that anyway. And the dollars that are coming out of this litigation, they're, they're nowhere near what we need to, to, to curb overdose deaths. We know that we need upwards of 20 to $30 billion per year. And it's also important to know that the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy case is the only mechanism that exists for individual victims to actually get any shred of justice in this case, because in the multi-district litigation, which is happening right now in Judge Polster's courtroom in Ohio, there's no mechanism for individuals to participate. And those companies, if they reach a settlement, which they probably will, and those pharmacies are going to get broad releases out of it. So individuals aren't going to be able to go back and sue. But in Purdue Pharma, individuals can participate in that process. So arguably, the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy was the only place where people who have lost loved ones, who have suffered as a result of the crimes of Purdue and Oxycontin, to be able to have any sort of compensation or justice, and that has been stolen from us. So yes, the states need to do a better job. They definitely need funding, but they have other revenue streams. Right, whereas people don't. I want to back up for a second. Why are they keeping to produce Oxycontin? Well, let's remember that Oxycontin inherently as a drug, is not a bad thing. I mean, I'm sober tw- almost 24 years, so I'm not saying we should have prohibition, but I'm just curious, like, clearly there's been enough legislation and there's been enough testifying to say Oxycontin is a very addictive drug, right? Like, we don't give people cocaine anymore for medical stuff. We don't do it. It's too addictive. You know, we give fentanyl, but we don't give heroin. So, like, my question is, why do we need to give Oxycontin? I mean, there are a lot of pain medicines out there, and a lot of them are easier, you know, that work as well. Maybe not, maybe not quite as well, but why continue producing Oxycontin? Why not just let it die? Congratulations on your recovery, by the way, I'm also in recovery uh, coming up on seven years. I don't I don't have the two decades plus that you do, but that is amazing. But I think a lot about addiction. And yeah, so I mean, that was why I was bringing that up. So opioids have been around in one form or another and used right since pre-Civil War days. It's the marketing, right? What the it's the weaponization of the American medicine cabinet that really made it dangerous. So if you're asking me, is there a medical use for Oxycontin? Absolutely. Should it be in every household like it was in the 90s and the 2000s? Absolutely not. There's it, There needs to be you know stricter controls on who gets it. You know, chronic uh, pain patients, end of life, cancer pain. Like these are all legitimate uses. But to the second part of your question, why not just let it die? Now, I advocated for the liquidation of the company, right, in my role within the bankruptcy, and I was basically laughed out of the room. Nobody in that case is advocating for, you know, just wiping Oxycontin off the face of the earth. And you know why? Because this is all about money. This has only always been about money. There is no settlement. There is no money without Oxycontin. It is the only thing that produces money for for what what is formerly Purdue and now is Nuco. You know, they have some new fancy name for it that the states are going to control. But without Oxycontin, there's, there's no funding. There's no settlement. There's no money for the states. It was pure and simple. This whole thing was a melting ice cube, right? Um, and and it was who could get to the table quickest, who could make the biggest claims, who could you know have sharper elbows and have a, a big cash grab. Right. You want the money to go to people who've been affected by Oxycontin and not to the states. 
Well, it's, I want the money. The states definitely have a legitimate claim to the money. What I would say is I believe that the victims, the people who were harmed the most, like the claims of the states, if you think about it, the claims of the hospitals, the claims of the cities and municipalities wouldn't even exist without the claims of the victims. I believe those victims should be first in line. Okay. Like there, there are cases of bankruptcies in the past with things like airbags and seatbelts where people got bruises, okay, did not lose their lives, and the settlement payouts were twice as much money as people are receiving who've lost someone to an overdose, okay? That is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Now, the money for abatement, I believe it needs to go out, but it needs to be, there needs to be more community control. So there was an, and I write about it in Unsettled, there was an opportunity at the beginning of this case to put $200 million on the ground at the beginning of the case in an emergency relief fund that would have funded things like harm reduction, recovery support services, family services, and the states wouldn't let us do it because they wanted total control. They said if it doesn't go through our state agency, it's not going out at all. It's important, and I think folks need a reminder that thinking about the $750 million dollars that's going to go out to over 130,000 victims in this case. Even add on to that the $200 million that we wanted for the emergency relief fund, which would have been a historic investment into these services for people who need them right now. A handful of lawyers, a handful of less than 1,000 lawyers in this case, will personally make over $1 billion. No, of course. I mean, that's why we don't have tort reform. I mean... Right. Because that's they're going to spend half of that on lobbying. I mean, that is a total scam. But it sounds to me like the issues that you're having are like are, are larger issues about the way that the American healthcare system works. Yeah, there are larger issues on how on how the American healthcare system works. There are also larger issues on corporate accountability. Right. You know, how corporations like Purdue and families like the Sacklers are able to find quick refuge in venues like White Plains, New York under Judge Robert D. Drain and walk away with, you know, nothing nothing more than a slap on the wrist. Let's remember. Walk us through the bankruptcy filing. Yeah. So in bankruptcy, you can't choose your judge, but you can choose your venue. That's important to know. White Plains, New York is overseen by a federal judge named Robert D. Drain. He has been very, when I say liberal, not liberal in the sense of like us, like liberal in the sense of uh, he gives out these third-party releases liberally. And they chose White Plains, but what they were choosing was really Judge Drain because they knew that the Sacklers could get a third-party release, and they also knew that he was very pro-debtor. Can you just explain what a third-party release is? Yeah. A third-party release allows a family like the Sacklers or an outside party that is not bankrupt themselves, nor do they have to file for bankruptcy, to actually benefit from all the things in the bankruptcy, right? So the Sacklers were receiving a third-party release, which essentially means they bought their way in, right? At the end of the day, they're writing somewhere close to a $4.5 billion check, and they're going to receive a release from any claim that has to do with the overdose and the opioid crisis, meaning I can't sue them, you can't sue them, another state can't sue them. It's also a term kind of known as quote-unquote global peace, but I would argue to say it's global peace for them, not necessarily the communities and families that they destructed. And they're walking away, they will walk away at the end of this after their part of the settlement is paid out, right, which is over nine years, the way it's structured, they will actually just assuming a healthy standard interest interest rate on the money that they have still in the bank, they'll be richer than they were today at the end of nine years if they don't make another penny. It's estimated their wealth will be somewhere between 15 to $16 billion. Just from interest? Just from interest, interest and investment. They're worth about $11 billion now. Over the nine years after, after paying the four and a half, they'll still be in a net gain. Right. I mean, I've known this family. I mean, what could have happened? I mean, the bankruptcy laws do really protect corporations and wealthy families. 
There was actually an option on the table. So a lot of the victims um, in the process and, and folks on my committee, I always felt very uncomfortable. I thought it was immoral and wrong that the Sacklers were going to be able to walk away with zero accountability out of this case. And as you can remember, probably remember, uh, sometime around spring, um, there was a lot of contention with what used to be the non-consenting states, mostly Democratic states, who felt the same way. Uh, majority of them actually ended up signing on to the settlement. But when we were in mediation, there was an option that was proposed that was like, hey, we could actually eliminate the Sacklers completely from this bankruptcy, right? And this is something people don't know. And just you know, allow it to be Purdue, the company in bankruptcy, and fund everything from there. The only issue was that the way the settlement had been negotiated over a course of a year was the victims, right? The $750 million that was going to victims, most of that money was coming from the Sackler contribution because we had known that this, that we had known about these third-party releases for almost two years, right? Since before Purdue went into bankruptcy. So we went to the states, Democratic and Republican, and we said, hey, states, we're good. Like, let's get rid of the Sacklers out of this bankruptcy. Let's just fund the victim settlement and the private creditor settlements, which was, you know, all in total, a little bit over a billion dollars from the same place you're getting your money from, which is from the future sale of Oxycontin and the billion dollars that exists right now in Purdue's bank account. We'll just all be on the same page and just take from the company, right, to fund the settlement. So protect the victim settlement, protect the other private creditor groups, and we're good. And guess what the state said? No, because they want the money. They said, no way, kick rocks, we're not doing that. So it calls into question, what was the most important thing here? Was it holding the Sacklers truly accountable or was it one big power and money grab? This is not a conspiracy. It's just the states would rather have the money than let people get the money. Or is it a conspiracy? It's not a conspiracy. It's a small cog in a larger wheel of a system that has to change that favors corporations and billionaire justice. Victims like me, victims, you know, over the 130,000 victims around this country get screwed, right? We get, and we're going to continue getting screwed until there's systemic changes from the top to the bottom. This will happen again unless we address meaningful bankruptcy reform in this Congress. Yes, and a meaningful bankruptcy reform and also meaningful pharmaceutical reform. Meaningful bankruptcy reform and meaningful um, pharmaceutical regulation reform. Like, we need better watchdogs. Yes, or any watchdogs. Or any watchdogs, because quite, I mean, and I'll end on this. You know, the states and the federal government, they're really upset right now. But we have to remember that they were empowered as watchdogs after the 2007 criminal plea, and they were asleep at the wheel. Agreed. And now they're being rewarded despite their lack of action. That's right. Thank you so much. This was really interesting. Thank you, Molly. Appreciate it. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Jesse Cannon. Molly John Fast. We are at our one segment. Oh. We, 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 you know, I'm cooking up some segments. Maybe, maybe we can. I know. We, maybe we, we have a new segment that. coming. We can rescind that. That's right. Soon it will be. We will have one and a half segments. We, we, we've tried. We've tried <laughs> before, and then some of them haven't gotten off the ground. But I'm, I'm feeling good about this one. Uh, that that's in the cauldron right now. Well, we only ever had. We had. We had fuck that guy and a good guy, and we couldn't think of any good guys, so we just <laughs> we that that idea died. But today, there was a weekend of a lot of fuckery. It's a long weekend. Though, of course, we're working because what else do we do? But but my fuck that guy is a man called Chuck Grassley. You may know Chuck because he has all, you know, he's uh, he's going to be 88 when he runs again for a uh, six-year term, 
which will make him die filed, <laughs> as we say. Yeah, he's 88 right now, so he will run for a six-year term, in which case he will be 94 when he completes his term. Uh, and But this weekend, you know, Chuck Grassley has um, managed to sort of be a Republican but not be Trumpy, you know, not ruin himself the way that a Ted Cruz or a, um, you know, a Mike Lee has. But this weekend... He really did manage to ruin himself, and he was the opening act for a Trump rally, and it was pretty... It was. I actually think it was more sad than... It, it just felt really grim to me. And, you know, these Republicans, they, they kidnap themselves and are holding themselves hostage because they're scared of Trump's Twitter, which he doesn't even have anymore. Uh, Mama, you know I hate nothing more than both sides-ism. You know, I, I hate Mia Saliza. yeah. Diane Feinstein and Chuck Grassley are the same age. We finally found okay. liberal, and we find we finally found yeah. left and right wing parody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. So DiFi, and I'll add Chuck Chuck Grassley and DiFi. The United States Congress is not the Supreme Court. You don't get to uh, stay there forever. And uh, but that's not why I say fuck that guy. I say fuck that guy because Grassley really did ruin himself for Trump. Well, my fuck that guy is Donald J. Trump, and that is because he called in with a message to Ashley Babbitt's Remembrance birthday party, uh, where he said, together we grieve her terrible loss. There was no reason Ashley should have lost her life that day, except for that I incited it. We must all demand justice for Ashley and her family. So on this solemn occasion, as we celebrate her life, we renew our call for a fair nonpartisan investigation into the death of Ashley Babbitt. And another video of the event shows that that her mother was cheering in a crowd, screaming, fuck off and die, Nancy Pelosi, because, nice. you know, as always, there's no civility. And what this whole Ashley Babbitt thing is actually about is that they don't want you to be civil when it comes to defending dear leader. On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode.